With another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 327, a.k.a. Year 7, Week 25, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Richie Rich, along with MC and KS. And we finally got that, uh, uh, what is it, club set up on Clubhouse. Um, I don't know, it's, it's linked in the show notes from last week because it's a, it's a terrible URL to have to read. Um, so if you're, if you need to find it, uh, you can follow me on clubhouse at riches for rich, R I C H E S the number four R I C H or follow us on telegram t.me slash anarchist experience or t.me slash the anarchist experience. And the clubhouse link will be in those notes. And this may, I don't know if this is the first show, but we're coming at you from like three different locations now because I'm still in, uh, the, the free state of New Hampshire, uh, MC, you're still, slogging away in in hawaii there but ks you're you're in texas now that's right in uh Carrollton, texas north of dallas any insights from from the the freedom liberty anarchist perspective in your short time in texas because we missed you last week because i think you were flying you're in route at the time that's right i just met with the uh, uh fort worth uh, libertarian party uh gathering uh, for lunch, and had a very nice visit with them. I mean, it was a casual gathering, not a, an official meeting, um, but uh, I was very impressed. They're very um, motivated and kind of bothered by the usual stuff that the um, you know the other parties have done their very best to keep them off the ballot. I mean, when they realized that they couldn't uh, keep them off the ballot by signatures. Uh, or five percent of the vote in a statewide race, they decided to charge them a fee for getting. Um, uh, toward, I mean, normally every candidate who files to be a candidate for office has to pay a fee, which can be thirty-five hundred dollars, uh, to pay for the primaries. But the Libertarians don't hold a primary. Only Repub- only Republicans, and Democrats have the state foster. Um, primaries on the taxpayers, but still the libertarians are charged this fee for the primaries for the Democrats and Republicans, and that fee per candidate is like a poll tax, which makes it harder for any candidate to run. Okay. It's and so that's that's one of the issues that they're dealing with here, and also cannabis. Uh, almost every other state around them, every other state around them has. Uh, um, uh, legalized uh, medical marijuana and and made it even recreational, but not in Texas. It's still one of the foremost in in um, arresting people for marijuana and I mean it's a felony, and for um, civil asset forfeiture. It's um, one of the worst in the nation. They say on civil asset forfeiture. So as much as people are talking about low taxes and why people want to move in great numbers from California to Texas. Um, 
So also in Texas, they are bothered by the fact that uh, it's um, surrounded by states who that have legalized marijuana, but not Texas. And so it's um, way behind the times. People have been arrested as a felony for owning marijuana, having marijuana. They have uh, police uh, patrols on certain stretches of the highway pulling people over to with sniff with dogs to see if they've got marijuana, and they can be charged with a, a felony. So this one um, person that I met uh, goes on the air and says, I'm committing a felony because I need this stuff for my medical purposes. Uh, and she's constantly challenging them publicly. I don't think they want to be real public. They just want to go after people and arrest them and fill their jails and collect their fines uh, from people with marijuana, but they don't want a lot of publicity about it. And it's uh, fueling their civil asset forfeiture laws. Um, it's worst in the country for uh, the use of civil asset forfeiture. So the government's getting rich off of taking people's properties and so on. That seems pretty typical for governments and state agencies in general. Um, you said a lot of those people moving to Texas were moving from California. Um, I would still suggest that it's probably an improvement over their current situation. Um, and much like, you know, New Hampshire is not the perfect place for complete liberty. Um, it's still much better than many other places and working to improve, right? So if, if, if there's local libertarians in Texas working on these issues, then hopefully, you know, the, the goal would be that they change those policies in the, fa- in the favor of more freedom and more liberty um, sooner rather than later. Right, like that's you know, it's it's a fight worth fighting for them there. I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, any yeah. more any more insights from just milling about Texas or you know the the city that you're in or any any notices going from Hawaii to Texas? Any negatives that were better in Hawaii aside from the weather well, and the I, beaches? I, I stopped off in California uh, for about four or five days, uh, also on the, my way here, and. Um, <laughs> And there's a lot of talk about uh, the, the, the high taxes, the government regulations, especially during this lockdown and, and the uh, recall of Governor Newsom. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I think that I, I don't think that I've ever really traveled across the country that has had so much rancor and, and tension and anger and frustration uh, at least maybe since 1968. I mean, back in 1968, there was the Vietnam War going on, protests in the streets, uh, Woodstock, uh, lots of uh, rallies around capital, uh, conventions of the major parties. You know, there were issues abounding in those days about civil liberties and protests and everything. Um, and I would say that this is uh, sort of approaching that for the levels of... of Rancor and hostility. In California now? Yeah. Okay. Well, probably probably across the country. I mean, in, in Hawaii, too, there's... Uh, they, these, these lockdowns have generated a lot of frustration. Well, like I, I was sharing last week, I don't know if, you know, you probably didn't listen, but coming back here was such an amazing improvement when it comes to, like, the lockdown protocols. Um you know, getting, getting harassed over the mask, uh, the COVID masks while in Hawaii and then coming back to New Hampshire. And, you know, one of the stores initially here, which was like, you know, one of the first to, to preemptively lock down, 
right? Like, well, we're wiping down all the carts and we're only letting a handful of people in at a time. And you guys got to stand six feet apart and wait in line outside alongside the building to get in. Uh, was like Trader Joe's. And I was like, ah, I don't, I don't really need to go to Trader Joe's anymore. Right. Like I, I will run the errands. I will not run to Trader Joe's. Um, but we came back here and Trader Joe's is already uh, relieved themselves of those, of those mandates. Right. You, you, we walked right in. Uh, and more, we're back to more than 90% of the people in the store weren't wearing masks. So I don't, I don't know if I would say like the vaccine has been a blessing in disguise. Um, but it seems to be an excuse to, to lift those onerous rules and regulations, either from the state level or from the corporate level. We're like, well, if you've got the vaccine, you don't have to wear masks, but we're not going to ask you if you're vaccinated. And, you know, everyone's doing it on the honor system. And I go, fucking fantastic. Then I'm just going to walk in and they're not going to harass me over it. Um, and it seems strange that states like California and, and Hawaii uh, haven't, haven't figured that out yet, right? Or at least the people there haven't figured that out yet where I don't, whether it's, you know, coming from the top or, or from the bottom, that whatever they're doing isn't working and it's unnecessary, right? And at some point, the people from the bottom just go like, well, we're just, we're just not going to comply and you can't arrest us all. And, you know, there, there goes that neighborhood, right? Well, I think that one thing that people are not focused, I mean, the, the general population is focused on it, but not the authorities at the CDC and the politicians, that the economy is the health of the country. It isn't just the money that people earn to, to uh, go on vacation. It's their livelihood. And it's not just making money to make ends meet. It's also uh, to have social interaction with uh, daily life. And I, I think that the, I think when the story is told about this whole thing with the lockdowns, um, I think it'll be abundantly clear that the lockdowns have resulted in more harm to society than gain by far because of the um, unintended consequences from government uh, overreach. Sure. And us anarchists, libertarians, whatever, from the beginning we're pitching that idea and the rebuttal that was levied at the time was, well, you're talking about economic harm, right, to a society. We're talking about actual death of individuals, and actual death of individuals or protecting individuals from actual death trumps your perceived economic harm, you know, long-term economic harm to society. So even if even if the story's told and go like, well, society is damaged economically because of the lockdowns, they will still throw the, but look how many lives we saved as a rebuttal. So what do you say to that? As an economist, you'd always say, well, okay, that's what is seen, those particular deaths that you attribute. But I mean, there's all kinds of manipulations of that data. But what is also deaths are the uh, thousands of people that were denied access for regular treatment at hospitals for cancer or heart disease or all kinds of other things that are much, much more serious. Um, and I think it's conceivable that uh, there could exist a disease that is so ravenous, so um, vicious and deadly in such high percentages that, that uh, maybe lockdowns might be warranted, but this one certainly doesn't classify, qualify. Okay. Yeah. And I would probably argue that if it were that bad, 
right? The lockdowns wouldn't have to be warranted because people would voluntarily self-isolate. I don't want to say even quarantine because they don't know they're sick yet, right? They would isolate themselves from, you know, if it was, you know, the Black Plague or something to that level or Ebola, right? Like, you know, we we would, as individuals, make the responsible decision for our individual lives. And I still wouldn't call for government intervention in that aspect right. of it. Even, even back in 1917, the populace with information and knowledge would have responded in a responsible health-preserving way. It was the government intervention to have wars, sending massive troops around the world, infected, and with shutting down, censoring the newspapers so they couldn't talk about it. Uh, it was all of this action by government that uh, made it uh, so much worse and deadly uh, than it would have been had the people been able to respond just normally with personal responsibility and information, open information. Yeah. I understand it was called the Spanish flu because even though it originated in, probably in a place in Missouri, they weren't allowed to talk about it in the United States. Sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, paralleling what's going on right now uh, with with the current media and social media platforms not allowing certain yeah. types of information. But then it was government censorship. Yeah. I think uh, today, I mean, these private company censorships like YouTube and Facebook, although I think they're responding largely because they expect that if they don't, uh, the government's going to come down even harder on them. Sure. So you mentioned the, the plague being spread through war. Is it, I want to ch- ch- change topics briefly, maybe circle back to it. Um, the uh, the U.S. withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, is that noteworthy? Is it significant in any way in your mind, in the grand scheme of things? It seemed, it seemed to just happen with not a lot of fanfare, but seemed to have longstanding ramifications, I guess. Well, sure. I think it's, um, from the libertarian point of view, um, well, you can go a long ways back and say what could have prevented it. It would have been, been prevented had the United States uh, not been so interventionist for decades. Um, and intervening, even going back to Iran and overthrowing the government back in 1953. So the non-interventionist policy of the United States would have prevented all of this hostility to the United States, I think it would have also prevented any dependency on oil from those parts of the parts of the world, uh, the buildup of dictatorships and regimes that and population that uh, may have hated the United States. I mean, so many things would have been prevented had there been in the 20th century a total non-interventionist policy of the U.S. government. And now they're finally undoing it, and they're going to blame anything of the withdrawal on. Well, now that means the Taliban is going to take over, but it it totally ignores the fact that all of the hostility that those people in those parts of the world have against the West is from the interventions. And you right. can carry it on not only U.S. interventions, but the British and the French and the uh, uh, interventions as well. You know, it's, it was endless. And this is finally uh, the, the cataclysmic blowback from um, centuries of imperialist uh, interventions. Is there real danger of the Taliban taking over? Because to me, it just sounds like that's the rhetoric that they would use to justify going back in or the look, see, I was right if something bad does happen. It's possible. Like we should have always stayed at war. 
Yeah, but I mean, we, we can also take the example from uh, Libya and Syria that uh, the United States intervened in Libya to overthrow Gaddafi because he was a bad guy, just like they overthrew uh, Saddam Hussein. But they had built up Saddam Hussein. I think the oil policy built up uh, Libya. I think without um, government interventions, international oil companies would have had to seek out much safer places that were lower risk. When the government of the United States and Britain and France and those countries say, we will cover your protection and insurance costs, don't you, you companies don't have to build that into the price of your, of your cost of production because the taxpayers of those countries will take those things over. Then that meant that they had a free reign to deal with dictators. But if they had to carry the full liability of insurance and protection of their own companies and their own oil wells in those things, then the price of oil in Libya and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran would have been three or four times as great as it was to them. And also the oil tax credits, which gave a tremendous advantage to companies to go abroad because they could, uh, at any rate, they, that, that's uh, endless kinds of subsidies, I would say, that have gone to the oil industry. But sure. without those interventions in, and promises of government to rescue them, um, oil would have been much more feasible in safe places like the North Sea or Alaska. Uh, other sources of energy would have been much more attractive and, uh, and so you, you would have seen an entirely different energy world without the government interventions. And speaking of interventions, any, any insight, I guess, was it the, the president of Haiti or something? Am I getting that right? That just was assassinated, yeah. allegedly? That's right. I heard that he was assassinated. I, don't, I haven't read anything about the background of it yet, though. I don't know why, what, what, what was behind it. Um, but I understand there's two contenders to the throne right now that say they both have the right to rule Haiti. Um, yeah. But that's, that's an also a long story of government intervention. The U.S. government has, on the one hand, overthrew uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide when he was elected. He was uh, uh, presumed to be a socialist of the uh, Cuban sort, so the U.S. government and the CIA had him overthrown by supporting the military dictatorship. And then, because it was a military dictatorship, were sort of obliged by the public opinion of the world to put up trade sanctions on the country, crippling the country's uh, economy and driving it into destitution. And then, of course, it was hit by hurricanes and earthquakes, but those things were all compounded by the poverty brought on by sanctions. Can you imagine uh, trade sanctions against uh, Haiti to cripple the already poorest country of the world? <laughs> it just... Uh, you know, free markets are the strength of the United States economy, not uh, these sanctions. Um, that's a whole other topic to get into, yeah. but trade sanctions, I think, have the opposite of the intended effect. They well, make countries worse off. I mean, look how much better off Vietnam is having free trade with the United States than when the United States went to war with Vietnam. It didn't, uh, you know, the U.S. lost the war against Vietnam um, after eight years but has gained tremendous footholds by just open trade. I think the, the working theory on why that happened was uh, allegedly they were against the uh, mandating the, the COVID vaccine, right? And there's a, there's a handful of other nations whose leaders eh, turned up kind of dead. 
um, when they weren't pushing the the jab, as it were. So the kind of this is Haiti, Haiti. Yes, uh, amongst amongst others. Allegedly, I you know, I'm I'm spewing third-hand information, so take it with a grain of salt. But that's that is the working conspiracy theory on the interwebs right now. Hmm. It's like, what's that? They didn't want to get the Pfizer jab or whomever, and then boom, dead. And amongst uh, amongst those arrested um, in connection to the assassination were uh, at least I think two American mercenaries. So there's there's an international connection there of some kind. Hmm. But right now, all speculative. But if if the United States did intervene, right, right after Joe Biden says like, yeah, we don't interfere with other governments and you know what they're doing, right? It is a little suspect as it were. Mm-hmm. All right. Shall we do headlines? I think that those sure. are the only two big sure. things that happened this week and not much going on. Headline. These are all like smaller level headlines. Headline. Hey, wrong car. Cops admit they were wrong before holding innocent man at gunpoint and cuffing him. Uh, headline. After a false abuse allegation, child services took this mom's three children away. Uh, headline, three Supreme Court justices signal willingness to reconsider uh, Kilo versus the city of New London. I think I want to move that one to the front of the line because that's sure long that's ramifications great. there. Uh, headline, the campaign against extremism looks like an attack on speech. Uh, we might move that one a second for now. Headline, the real threat of sectarianism. Uh, headline, America's largest police department, quote, Come have fun in the NYPD game trailer, unquote. Uh, headline, Biden does not need a domestic terrorism agenda unless he is about to violate American rights. Uh, headline, city proposes firing and arresting good Samaritans who donate to the homeless. And finally, headline, American cities, big and small, still ruffling feathers of backyard chicken owners. So, yeah, um, I moved my two to the front there. Was there any other, any of those that stuck out more importantly in your guys' minds? Whatever you choose. All there. right. Headline, three Supreme Court justices signal willingness to reconsider Kilo versus the city of New London. It's an indication that the notorious decision holding that the government can take property for private, quote, economic development, unquote, may be vulnerable. On Friday, the Supreme Court refused to grant the petition for certiorari. I don't know what that is. In Eichner versus City of Chicago, a case where the plaintiff sought to challenge and overrule Kilo versus City of New London. Kilo is the controversial case in which the Supreme Court held that the government could use eminent domain to take property in order to promote private economic development. Although the Fifth Amendment states that the government may only take private property for, quote, public use, unquote, a narrow five to four Supreme Court majority built on earlier precedents to rule that virtually any potential public benefit qualifies and therefore upheld the taking of multiple homes in order to transfer them to a new private owner who was expected to promote economic development. While the court refused to take Eichner, uh, three justices, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, indicated that they wanted to hear the case. Thomas wrote a strong dissent to denial of certiorari. Am I saying that right? Do you know what? I'm... I have no idea. Okay. Which Gorsuch joined. 
This petition provides us the opportunity to correct the mistake the court made in Kelo. There, the court found that the Fifth Amendment's public use requirement satisfied when a city transferred land from one private owner to another in the name of economic development. That decision was wrong the day it was decided, and it remains wrong today. Public use means something more than any conceivable public purpose. Three, three The Constitution's text, the common law background, and the early practice of eminent domain all indicate that the quote, uh, quote, that the takings clause authorizes the taking of property only if the public has a right to employ it, not if the public realizes any conceivable benefit from the taking, unquote. Uh, where am I? Taking land from one private party to give to another rarely will be for public use. The majority in Kilo strayed from the Constitution to diminish the right to be free from private takings. Thomas and Gorsuch's interest in overruling Kilo is not surprising. Thomas wrote a forceful dissent in Kilo itself. In my view, it was the strongest of the four opinions in the case. We already knew Gorsuch thinks Kilo was wrongly decided because he said so in an email that came out during his Supreme Court confirmation process in 2017. It is ironic that Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee was so strongly opposed to a decision Trump himself often praised. Kavanaugh's interest in this issue is more of a surprise. Prior to yesterday, he had never, at least to my knowledge, expressed any position on this issue. And we know these three are not the only current Supreme Court justices who work who think Kilo should be reconsidered. Justice Samuel Alito has long held similar views, going back at least as far as his interest in taking the case of Goldstein versus Pataki back in 2008. If Alito chose not to cast the fourth vote necessary to grant the petition for certiorari in Eichner, it may be because he thought it was a flawed vehicle for the issue. Reconsidering Kilo is not necessarily the same thing as overruling it. As Thomas points out in his dissent yesterday, Kilo also left us with a doctrinal mess that makes it difficult to discern public use from private favors. Although taking a very broad view of what qualifies as public use, the majority still indicated that pretextual takings intended to benefit a private party are forbidden. What exactly counts as a pretextual taking is an issue that has deeply divided state and lower federal courts ever since. In my book on the Kilo case and in 2011 article on the topic, I cataloged at least five distinct approaches judges have taken on this, on this question. And things haven't gotten any less confusing since then. Thus, while Thomas and Gorsuch clearly want to overrule Kilo completely, it's possible that Alito and Kavanaugh just want to clarify the pretext issue. But even the latter would likely result in giving more bite to the public use requirement as these justices would probably identify at least some substantial categories of takings as forbidden. And as a practical matter, I doubt the court would want to consider this issue merely to reiterate the idea that court should almost always defer to the government. Obviously, these four aren't enough to form a majority on the court, with the exception of Justice Breyer, who joined the Kilo majority, and Justice Sotomayor, who took an ultra-deferential approach to public use issues as a lower court judge, we don't know uh, much about where the other justices stand on Kilo and public use, but there's a decent chance at least one of them would be willing to overrule or significantly limit Kilo if the issue came before the court again. Kilo has many weaknesses, and there are good reasons to reject on both originalist and living constitution grounds. In the conclusion of my book, The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus the City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain, I noted several reasons why Kilo 
is more likely to be overruled someday than most prominent Supreme Court decisions. Among other things, it was a close 5-4 ruling and is highly unpopular. It attracted numerous critics from across the political spectrum, and there are several serious flaws in the majority's reasoning. There are few, if any, other major Supreme Court decisions where the author of the majority opinion, Justice John Paul Stevens, later admitted that his reasoning was based in substantial part on an embarrassing to acknowledge misunderstanding of precedent. It is also notable that Chief Justice John Roberts had taken a strong pro-property rights position in almost every takings clause case that has come before him since he joined the Supreme Court, most recently in the important Cedar Point case. That doesn't automatically mean he will do the same thing in the public use cases. The latter raise different issues from cases where the main point of contention is whether a taking occurred in the first place rather than whether the purpose of the taking qualifies as a public use. But his record here is nonetheless suggestive. While there are some people, particularly on the left, who combine opposition to Quito with a highly deferential approach to the question of what qualifies as a taking, there are very few who hold the opposite set of views, deferential to the government on public use but pro-property rights on other takings issues. None of this necessarily means that the court will overrule Kilo anytime soon or even take a case on the issue, but yesterday's events suggest that the odds of getting Kilo reversed or significantly limited are good enough that property rights advocates should redouble their efforts to find another vehicle to bring the question of the meaning of public use back before the court. Good things might come to those who don't wait too long. Uh, end of the article. So when I read the headline and the article uh, the, the first time, um, from a legal perspective, it seemed very interesting, if not just provocative. Is there significance to them thinking about reconsidering this case, in your opinions? Well, I don't know about the legal uh, constitutional grounds as much as I would assert. In my opinion, there is no such thing as a distinction between a public use and a private use. In other words, they say, well, it's okay for the government to take um, a, a farmer's land to build a railroad because that railroad's going to be used by the public versus the Kilo versus New London, Connecticut, where they were going to take all this land from private owners and give it to the Pfizer chemical company in order to uh, set up their factory, which incidentally, they changed their mind about and never did build it, so it's just a parking lot today. Um, but the, in the first case, where you say taking a farmer's land uh, to build a railroad, well, the railroad has private interests as well. The railroad has the, uh, the desire to do this. The contractors who are building it, they have a desire to do it uh, for, because of gains to themselves. Uh, merchants and shippers on both ends of the railroad have an interest in it too. But there are a lot of people who don't have an interest in it. There are taxpayers all around who would say, well, instead of having that railroad, they should have used the other railroad that existed. They should have used other highways or roads that existed. Or maybe they should use ocean-going freight or, or airlines instead of that railroad. Uh, when that railroad goes across the public land, it's going to be causing uh, pollution. Um, in other words, there are a lot of arguments against it. Even taxpayers thousands of miles away who have to wind up paying for that. And then they say, well, we're going to compensate this uh, farmer for the land that he's lost. There's no way you can compensate it involuntarily. You only can justly compensate someone when it is voluntary. Otherwise, it's, it's unjust compensation. 
So, uh, and, and even with the, when the government decides to take somebody's land, they, they take it by taking taxpayers' money. And they, a lot of taxpayers may have no interest at all in that particular in, uh, um, uh, project. So there is no such thing as a public project that is uh, beneficial to all the public uh, and therefore it's justified. And so therefore I would say you run up against the very first thing, the Eighth Commandment that says thou shalt not steal, and that's embedded in every constitutional argument, every legal principle, and you're just using this as a justification to steal. Sure. So a, a couple of questions come up with what you said. Um, one is more theoretical than anything else, but I'll, I'll pose it anyway. Did the concept of eminent domain make more sense at the time of the, you know, the, the writing of the document um, because there was less established pas- passageways than there are now, right? Like we, we live in a society where the roadways are built, the railways are built, right? The, 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 the way to get from here to there is, is well established. And so taking land to establish those things doesn't make any sense now, uh, but it did then, right? When you were going across the continent, right? There was an efficient way to do mm-hmm. things. And if a farmer set up his, you know, his, his farm in the middle of that efficient way, well, then maybe you con- compensate him and take him. But like everything is established now, so eminent domain isn't as important <coughs> as it was. Does that make sense? I, I understand what you're saying, and yes, that is part of the argument that's given. And I would say that that's the perfect example of why it is a, a bad argument. The transcontinental railroads, uh, the Southern Pacific, the Union Pacific, and the Northern Pacific were all railroads, three railroads for the transcontinental to, to go across the United States, steal the land from the Indians, steal the land from the farmers, do whatever was necessary to build those ra- railroads. They were all built for political purposes and all went bankrupt because of the way it was handled. The one railroad, the Great Northern Railroad, was not built by eminent domain, was not built by taxpayers' money. It's the only railroad that was built and succeeded and never went bankrupt because James Jerome Hill made contracts with the farmers. He showed them that it was in their interest to sell their crops into the market. He made contracts with the Indians to ask them for the land, and they saw there was benefit of, of having a railroad or not. There were jobs, and, and he built things off of uh, uh, natural grades so that it would be easy to operate later on with a few locomotives car- carrying uh, lots of uh, railroad cars. He built... Uh, uh, the whole thing without a bit of eminent domain, and it was the successful railroad. So it's, I think that's the perfect example of how the government will use its powers of eminent domain and uh, create nothing productive, uh, whereas there are always alternatives if you uh, allow for them. And, and besides, they, they didn't have to have the transcontinental railroad at that point in time. The massive amount of money that was lost on building those three railroads was taken from somewhere else that could have been much more productively used in building uh, industry and manufacturing and consumer uh, benefits in the East Coast if it hadn't been stolen by the government to build those things in the West, taking in land away from the Indians. A third of the cost of those railroads was just the military to kill the Indians and get them out of the way. And it also ruined the reputation 
of American investment because wherever that that investment money was coming from, um, from Dutch uh, investors, British investors, French investors, and when they saw so much of their money squandered and lost in these uh, stupid, unproductive railroads, they said, we're not going to invest in, in the United States anymore. So a lot of opportunity cost um, was suffered because of the bad decisions of government intervention. Sure. And the other, the other issue that comes up for me with this uh, Supreme Court re- reconsideration is from the, the anarchist perspective, from the libertarian perspective, maybe, uh, I try not to get too excited about government doing the right thing or, or making good on certain things because I prefer a little bit more of like the out-of-the-system rebellious types of activism. So mm-hmm. from, from, from that perspective, sh- is there... Is there anything to this reconsideration thing? Like, sh- should I be excited about it? Because I, my ears, like I said, when I read the headline, my ears perked up. I went, huh, did not think that they would come back around to this, especially with, you know, the, the, the amount of power they gained with the decision they made. Um, but should I, well, should I, I get excited about it? Yeah. Yes, I think it, it is worth getting very excited about because even having that, I mean, even though I personally don't accept that any eminent domain is for the public uh, interest, they narrowing it down from taking it uh, from whatever they think is good for the public to at least, um, you know, private uh, public infrastructure jobs is a tremendous narrowing of their power to uh, to to use eminent domain. So I I think that's a huge step in the right direction. And then subsequently, is it a is it reflective of a shift in public opinion? Maybe because the Supreme Court's appointed, they're tenured, they don't have to worry about you know what anybody thinks, and yet they're they're going to like basically and I want to they're not going to, but I want to say like admit that they made a mistake and try to remedy it, even if to a small degree. Do you think that comes? Do you think that comes from any sort of public pressure? for them to do the right thing or like what what do you think what do you think is the impetus for them saying like no no we've really we've really got to remedy this one and correct this mistake it's not the same people on the supreme court so these new people i think uh do think that they are making their mark and they're doing so because that's what they personally felt i i I think they're aware of the the unpopular uh general attitude towards kilo but that was part of their legal background and everything too. Right. I think it's uh, just their their personal opinion, and I I I'd have to say that is attributable to the three recent appointees that have the same idea that Clarence Thomas did you know a long time ago. But sure, yeah. But I when you say make those. their mark, you think it might be ego on their part, like to get to get their name in the history books as one of those that reverse this travesty. I, I don't think so. I think all of those people on the Supreme Court genuinely believe that they're in their in their philosophical basis. I, I mean, it may be uh, you, you can't separate it from their desire to have personal fame, but I I think I think their legal background has has solidified their philosophical position, and it would be that because they they'll. Uh, uh, they will still state that same position, even if public opinion went against them, okay. and if their if their name went down badly in the history books because of it, as often uh, has happened. But I, I think they pretty much know their philosophy when they when they get appointed. 
I really don't know what the thinking is behind the, the Supreme Court justices, how much their personal ideas are affected by this. So uh, that's the end of my thought. Okay. Any, any thoughts from you, MC, on the Supreme Court uh, reconsidering it? Like, any predictions uh, no, on whether or not they're actually going to reconsider it? I, I, I don't follow them, and I don't really care. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Moving on, then. Uh, this, is, this is kind of what we were talking about earlier. Uh, the campaign against extremism looks like an attack on speech. Uh, also from reason efforts against violence are turning into restrictions on ideas. And if you look at the article, there's a big photograph of like the Facebook logo. So we know who they're talking about. Some Facebook users have recently received a warning about extremism, quote unquote, and offers of help for those who with acquaintances attracted to extremist ideas. It's part of an international push to discourage and restrict communications considered radical and hateful. While often couched in concern about the potential for violence, this effort looks increasingly like a scheme to narrow the boundaries of acceptable discussion and muzzle speech that makes powers that be uncomfortable. Are you concerned that someone you know is becoming an extremist? Asks one Facebook message. We are about preventing extremism on Facebook. Others in your situation have received confidential support. Taken by itself, the messages are somewhat creepy indications uh, that the tech giant doesn't approve of a subset of its users' communications, politics, and associates. But the messages, which send those who click through to the company's redirect initiative to combat violent extremism and dangerous organizations by redirecting hate and violence-related search terms toward resources, education, and outreach groups that can help is part of a much larger international program involving dozens of governments and tech firms. One year ago, we committed to the Christchurch call to action in response to the March 15, 2019 attack in Christchurch, New Zealand, Facebook noted in May 2020. Since then, our companies have continued our shared work to prevent terrorists and violent extremists from abusing digital platforms. Co-founded by the government of France and New Zealand, the Christchurch Call to Action promotes collective voluntary commitments from governments and online service providers intended to address the issues of terrorist and violent extremist content online and to prevent the abuse of the internet as occurred in and after the Christchurch attacks. It has since been joined by governments from Australia to India to the United Kingdom and by companies including Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Twitter. The U.S. joined the Christchurch Call in May. Despite earlier concerns about threats to free speech posed by state action against ill-defined extremism, at almost the same moment, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security issued a bulletin warning about the potential dangers of messaging from domestic terrorists. Social media and online forums are increasingly exploited by these actors to influence and spread violent extremist narratives and activities, it cautioned. The Iran Corporation, the well-connected granddaddy of think tanks, recently joined in with an effort to gather and then analyze first-hand accounts of extremist radicalization and de-radicalization. Researchers added that the interview protocol was designed to engage all participants in talking about radicalization and its prevention at four levels, individual, relational, institutional, and societal. Like Facebook, but unlike DHS and Christchurch Call, RAND didn't entirely confine its concern to extremism of the violent variety. 
It's eyebrow-raising enough when private organizations creep in terms of their concerns from violent extremism to extremism to radicalization, but it becomes dangerous when governments with the power of law backed by police and prisons do the same, and that's exactly what is happening. If your intent is to incite hatred against them, then potentially, New Zealand's Justice Minister Chris Fa'afoy answered last month when asked if a pending hate speech bill would criminalize criticism of boomers by millennials. But again, it's up to the police and what you say. Commenters point out that the proposal would even punish criticism of political opinion. New Zealand's government, let's remember, is one of the co-founders of the Christchurch call, which inspired Facebook's extremism warnings. The proposed legislation, including hefty fines and prison terms for speech offenders, is crafted to implement the call's intent. America's strong tradition of respect for speech embodied in the First Amendment America uh, should prevent any similar laws against vigorous, vitriolic, or evenly overtly hateful speech so long as they stop short of incitement to violence. But that doesn't mean that powerful people wouldn't very much like to narrow the parameters of acceptable speech far more than the Constitution might allow. In January, former CIA Director John Brennan assured an MSNBC interviewer that the Biden administration is focusing on, quote, what looks very similar to insurgency movements that we've seen overseas, consisting of an unholy alliance of religious extremists, authoritarians, fascist, bigots, racist, nativist, even libertarians, unquote. Notably, Brennan did not distinguish between those who use extreme tactics and those who, with whom he disagrees with politically, observed, observed Max Abrams, a professor for public policy at Northeastern University and expert on political violence. For Brennan, both are enemies worthy of not only of contempt, but action or at least government scrutiny. Fortunately, Brennan no longer holds a government job, but he remains a high-profile media commentator and security advisor with continuing ties to those who do wield power. It's not difficult to believe that his sentiments are more widely shared at a time when the U.S. government endorses the Christchurch call plan for curbs on speech and issues terrorism advisories about extremism. And private companies aren't constrained by the First Amendment. Facebook and other companies have every right to interpret extremism as they wish, purge it from their platforms, and ostracize or refer for re-education its advocates. Politicians, limited in their abilities by constitutional constraints or political opposition, may well to see their preferences about the acceptable boundaries of speech enforced by private parties that share their prejudices and have signed on to the same mission. The Christchurch call and related efforts against extremism have their roots in efforts to battle violence, not speech. Most people would agree that the majority of extremist ideas targeted so far are vile, even when not explicitly dangerous. But already we're seeing one of the founders of the Christchurch call suggesting that criticism of political opinion or of one generation by members of another might deserve criminal penalties. Concerns about violence are being replaced by warnings against disapproved speech itself. Extremism, it turns out, is in the eye of the beholder, and too many campaigners against extremism seem eager to turn their efforts into restrictions, not just on what people do with their ideas, but also on the range of ideas they are allowed to voice. End of the article. So notable uh, in the article, the, the libertarians were, were grouped in with those extremist viewpoints. Uh, so your thoughts on that, and uh, more specifically, 
we we get that Facebook is its own private organization, private platform, yada yada yada. But what happens when they start working in concert with or on behalf of uh, governmental agencies? Does that open them up for further scrutiny from us? Well, the reason that they don't like libertarians is because the libertarians are likely to label government agents as the extremists who practice violence all the time. Well, because it fits the definition. Yeah, it fits the definition of terrorism and violence. Um, And on the grander scale than anybody else. I mean, if you look just at what the United States has done, uh, to to uh, all kinds of uh, life across the Middle East or even Africa or or even in the United States in terms of uh, uh, harassing and prosecuting and killing um, people for marijuana uh, uh, or, or arresting them. Uh, I mean, uh, you look at the you, if you add up the the tally of of violence against individuals, uh, the politicians would have to be at the top of the list, and uh, and they do so by stealing money from taxpayers and sending it to tyrants uh, all over the world. But as long as they have a government mantle over their head, then a tyrant is just considered to be a political leader. You know, I mean, I, I think that that's um, the, the, the hypocrisy of, of their domestic terrorism uh, accusations is abundantly clear to a libertarian, and that's why they don't like libertarians. Sure. So are, as, as libertarians go then, are we just on our own to find another platform of which to pose these ideas? Um, you know, does it, does it not then become just a preaching to the choir? Uh, if you're not allowed on the, if you, if your speech is not allowed on the, in the larger platforms that reach a larger audience, is that just, you know, is that just the lumps that libertarians take for being in the minority? I think it always implies being subtle in the ways, I mean, it's, it's always been, the history of human speech has been to try and uh, get around the controls of, sen- of tyrants and censors. And we just just continue the, the, the same old battle we've always had in, in being heard uh, by being careful not to step on the toes of the tyrants while we're saying our message. And, and there are ways of doing it. It's through mockery and satire and through um, things that they don't even understand, um, that that the message still gets around. Sure. So, yeah. so here here's an interesting, I guess, thought experiment. If if you are aware that Facebook is cracking down on, well, they'll say extremist viewpoints, but you know, lib- libertarian writers, authors, people who, who pose libertarian ideas, and you know that those ideas aren't wanted on the Facebook platform, are you then obligated to censor yourself or remove yourself from that platform rather than use it to promote your message, however subtle it may be? Well, no, I don't think... You are obligated... You do have... If you want to be heard, you want to find choose words that will be listened to. To. But that's true throughout history and throughout sure. the classroom and throughout your friends. You're always picking words that will that they'll listen to and trying to avoid not only the words that are just harsh and abrasive to people's ears, but um, uh, that they'll understand. So there's nothing new in that, I think. Sure, but if if Facebook, if, if Facebook outright came out and said like we don't want libertarians and anarchists on our platform, right? Would you? 
would you then, you know, shut down your Facebook account and move off of it? Or, you know, knowing, knowing that you're no longer wanted there, because it seems like they're trying to push people away subtly without outright banning them. Um, but they could easily just outright ban people and they've done so with the, the more extreme members. They, they may do so, but I, you know, you just ignore them until it's, uh, until they make it a fact. I mean, they, that can be the threat all along, but, um, I mean, I, I respect people who have done so. I mean, I think, uh, there's a guest on this program here. Uh, oh, not Andy, but David on, uh, he, you know, shut down his Facebook account. Maybe others have too. And I, I don't begrudge them doing so. I think that's fine. It's just that it's not my way to do it because I, I still want to reach people in a convenient and easy way. But I don't mind trying new, new platforms. Sure. Okay. So basically, until Facebook bans you, you're okay using their platform, even though you know that they don't want to hear your, hear your message. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Fair enough. Um, and again, on the on the on the part where the it's the government cracking down, obviously there's nothing to, much to say about that. Um, but do you differentiate when it's the when it's the um, private company? Working on behalf of the government, um, this kind of this kind of came up several years ago, in like during one of the Free State Project's Liberty Forum events. Like there was there was uh, I don't know if he was a speaker or a guest. Uh, Thaddeus Russell basically said that you know so long as the hotel is you know getting government benefits, you know benefiting from you know their relationship with the state, you as a libertarian are not obligated abide by the rules of the hotel and like private property libertarians got all up in arms right like yeah how dare you say that i can i'm allowed to smoke in the elevator you know just because they get a, a, a government payout and he's like well if, if there's a partnership there like whose side are they on and you know is it is it similar in this case with with the speech issues where if, if they were in partnership with the state would that change things in your mind or would you still you know continue to to give them their platform and find your own if you had to i still respect private uh, private property rights as much as possible i mean everybody receives mail from the u.s postal service it's subsidized and i don't say that anybody who gets a piece of mail then uh, has to be boycotted i mean i i use a boycott where it may may have some impact um, but i don't think it's gonna you know just an impact has to be a coordinated uh a coordinated boycott of a lot of people on a targeted issue to have any particular impact. Otherwise, I think you're just making a personal statement, and uh, but without, I don't know. It's up to each person how they want to do it. Sure, I, that's it's what I what I judge. I don't use a boycott. Let's see where where. Are, um, well, I, I I think there are some simple things. I I don't buy ivory, for example. Um, because I, I, I don't like uh, being a part of the demand for elephant tusks. I don't think there's anything wrong with people who, who do that, uh, you know, any more than using a leather belt because it comes from a cow's uh, side. I use leather and I use uh, my sh- leather shoes and leather belts. I mean, these are just all personal quirky things, but they don't have anything to do with government. Sure. Um, I don't. I don't know where to go with that. Let's move on. Yeah. One more article. Uh, America's, this one's funny because I'm a gamer 
and MC's kind of a gamer. Uh, America's largest police department, come have fun in the NYPD game trailer. Uh, four years ago, this is from Activist Post. Four years ago, I wrote an article about police department ice cream trucks. I thought only kids would be fooled by them. I didn't think tone-deaf police departments would come up with another disturbing PR move portraying them as officer-friendly to minorities. Now the largest police department in the country, the New York Police Department, has unveiled their latest neighborhood propaganda tool, a government-sponsored gaming trailer. Even the most ardent police supporters would be hard-pressed to find a more culturally insensitive thing to happen to minority youths in recent memory. The way law enforcement can use a gaming trailer to indoctrinate our youth are too many to list here, but as Gizmodo points out, the way police can use a gaming trailer to secretly collect kids' personal information are frightening. When police ply kids with PS5s, Xboxes, Nintendo Switches, plus plush gaming chairs and blue party lights, one has to ask why, which is what, what New York City-based public defender Eliza Orleans did. As a public defender, I've represented kids as young as 15 whose DNA was surreptitiously collected by NYPD, like from a can of soda, used straw, or a bag of chips, item often uh, often, items often offered by cops to the children. The last thing they need to be doing is voluntarily entering cop vans. Uh, Senior counsel for Brooklyn Defender Service, M.K. Kaishian, warned, as a criminal defense attorney, I would advise against every young person to stay away from the police foundation's so-called game truck, a mobile surveillance arcade for the safety and for the protection of their personal information. M.K. Uh, Kaishian wrote to Gizmodo, pointing to DNA harvesting. If this venture was really about providing harmless activities for young people to engage in, there would be no need for police involvement. And that's just the tip of the proverbial iceberg of the NYPD gaming trailer disaster. As Amnesty International mentioned, the NYPD uses 15,000 CCTV facial recognition cameras to ID everyone. So the odds are pretty high that the NYPD's gaming van is equipped with them. The NYPD has the ability to track people in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and the Bronx by running images from 15,280 surveillance cameras. This sprawling network of cameras can be used by police for invasive facial recognition and risk turning New York into an Orwellian surveillance city, said Matt Mahmoudi, artificial intelligence and human rights researcher at Amnesty International. As the New York Times revealed, children as young as 11 years old have been added to the NYPD's facial recognition database. So it is not hard to imagine police officers secretly IDing kids who have been enticed into entering their gaming trailers. Unfortunately, the NYPD surveillance of kids doesn't stop with facial recognition. The gaming trailer is probably equipped with IBM's intelligent video analytics software and Bluetooth readers that could identify a kid's cell phone. More than likely, the gaming trailer is also using stingrays to intercept cell phone calls and messages. If the NYPD are using the gaming trailers to secretly collect kids' information, it's a sure bet they're using it to monitor their social media posts as well. Every gamer knows that most games require a player to submit their account name and password, which is linked to their personal information and credit history. By personal information, I mean their full names, address, age, etc. In other words, if you want to continue playing a game at your local police gaming trailer, you need to give law enforcement all your personal information, making it easy to track kids across multiple gaming platforms. It's not hard to imagine that police officers could also be collecting kids' fingerprints off of cups of soda and food wrappers left behind in the gaming trailer. And the gaming trailer could also be equipped with iris recognition, making it easier for the NYPD to ID and track minorities. The number of ways the NYPD can secretly use the gaming trailer to collect the kids' personal information is appalling. A police gaming trailer flies in the face of police violence and Black Lives Matter protests. A police gaming trailer is providing minority kids a false sense of safety and respect. It does nothing for real reform. 
These PR tactics are meant to mask how law enforcement has been destroying people's lives for years. It is not uncommon for police departments to engage in community outreach tactics to groom informants, mine children for information about their family members and neighbors, and to otherwise normalize their presence in communities where the harm they cause rightfully generates fear and distrust, civil rights attorney Jeffrey Stein added. Police gaming trailers cannot make up for decades of stopping and frisking thousands of innocent people or questioning residents in their own buildings. Uh, maybe police are using gaming trailers and ice cream trucks to ID disaffected use and enter the personal information into the National Counterterrorism Center's Red Book. No amount of community outreach is going to change the fact that the new war on terror is just beginning. The last thing America's youth needs are police surveillance traders masquerading as gaming trailers. Uh, so there was a lot of could be, should be, might be, you can count on them doing this, uh, but not a lot of actual like this is what they're doing, just a lot of speculation. So is there is there reason to be concerned about these gaming trailers or is it just positive PR to, to get to get the police back in the good graces of the populace? Um, I don't know, but um, I, I still uh, think uh, shouldn't be paying police to do these things. It does seem like a non-police <laughs> activity. It seems, it seems like, to me it should be unconstitutional, isn't it? You to to gather all this information, DNA. Uh, I thought you had to have warrants to do that. Ah, but you're going in there voluntarily, KS. They're not. They're not going to your place. You're going to theirs. And there's no consent to DNA. It's just a consent to play a game. Okay. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but if if I were to you know drop a fingernail in your at your place and you used it for some nefarious purposes, does it matter if I consented or not? I don't know. I would suppose that there would be a legal challenge somewhere if that DNA was collected from this, uh, in this manner, and then later, you know, 10 years later, they're going to charge him with a crime based on this identification. I would think that if he had a good lawyer, he'd be able to get off whatever that is because of the basis for the collection of the DNA. I think mean, it's different maybe with the fingerprint than it is with DNA, I'm guessing, but I, I'm just taking my legal background from movies and TV shows. If yeah. it led... Also, Go ahead. To, to me, it's a bigger thing of... of it's, it's the same thing in the, the government's collection of social media. It's... We, you know, they're paying billions of dollars to have these huge server farms that collect everything from everybody, and we shouldn't be paying them to do that. We don't need them to do that. It's not a cost-effective thing to do. Um, it doesn't solve any problems and uh, it's just, and it's wrong, you know, to begin with. So um, there's, there's no reason for it. And wh- whether or not an individual really cares if the government has their DNA or not, doesn't matter. I think that's a, I think that's an, an important perspective uh, because on, on the surface, right. I just go like, well, even with social media, right. They collect it, but they're collecting it because you're offering it up, right? If you go into this gaming truck, you know, for whatever reason, you are offering it up voluntarily. Um, you know, the, the, the state itself being coercive, their, their methodology of funding this endeavor, coercive in nature, right? Because they taxpayer money to collect this information from, from the youths. Um, but if you're, if you're volunteering information, right, like... You know, it goes, it goes back to like the don't talk to cops, right? If they can't collect what you're not willing to, to give, 
without that warrant. But if you go in there voluntarily, if you're on social media voluntarily, um, and they collect that information because of that, I, who else is there to blame but you for, for proffering it up? Uh, well, the state. <laughs> for collecting it? or aren't I mean, there, Aren't there privacy settings on even on social media saying, well, this is only to friends that I have... Uh, personally added that, that it's not for general consumption. Well, I mean, the, the state, the state can get it no matter what is a thing. They can, yeah. they, they, they can even put back doors inside of uh, Google or Facebook and, and get it, get the data going between their own servers. And so whether or not you share it to everybody doesn't matter to the state so much. And in fact, once you, once they target you, they can reroute your data out of the country so that it's legal for them to spy on it. That's part of the, five eyes uh yep technology so for for me personally and i don't know about you ks when it comes to like social media i just assume that anything that goes out there is public information like i don't i don't put any faith in the privacy settings regardless um and if you if you want to make a case for you know fraud or you know uh, uh contractual violation because they didn't uphold their end of the bargain i would hear it uh but I think, again, this goes back to, like, personal responsibility. I don't post anything I wouldn't want to be made public on social media. I, I personally wouldn't go into this gaming truck. I think the article is is well-to-do to advise people not to. Um, I would advise people not to as well. But I can't – I don't know if I would find fault in, in the actual police work um, if you volunteer information, Right. Like that's, that's the easiest way for them to set a trap, um, but you have to avoid the trap, right? Hmm. Is that fair, at least? Yeah. Like if, yeah. You, if, if they offer you a can of soda and you drink and they go, ah, oh, we got your fingerprints off this can of soda, and go, damn, should not have, you know, should not have taken that, that offer from them in the first place, right? Like assume, uh, because they're the state, assume they're up to something nefarious and proceed accordingly. Anytime you walk down the street, I guess they can, their facial recognition equipment will gather information about you. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that there's, I mean, where is Edward Snowden when we need him to root this out? <laughs> well, and, and, and I, would, I would probably make a harder case for walking down the street because that is, in effect, you know, public, right? And mm. I think that's a, a, a case where you could make the claim that they shouldn't be able to do that in public um, necessarily, you know, spy on everybody, but inside the police van, like, you know, if you consider that, you know, uh, for the sake of argument, private property, like you, you know, like you would a building, right? Like when you go into the supermarket, if the supermarket has cameras, you know, you're not, you're not up in arms about privacy concerns. It's just out in public. So inside the, inside the police van, I'm less concerned as I am outside the police van if they're spying on the, the general area. Yeah, but still, the, the problem is they shouldn't even have a police van. You're right, and I'm conceding that point because I'm not arguing yeah. against you on that. They should not have. They should not have it. It should not be funded by taxpayers. Um, but but you know, going from what we know, they've already got it, and now how do we mitigate the damage that it, it, it's causing? Um, well, obviously, you tip it over, and I would support uh, that as well. Burn them alive, but. Um, <laughs> Again, no argument from here there. You know, that is, that is one step further down the road. Don't approach it. Don't go into it. Um, and if they are causing harm, blow it up. Why not? Now, since we're saying this on the air and it's being broadcast and probably collected somewhere in some NSA scoop, uh, 
I hope they don't use that as a justification then for arresting you in the middle of the night. Ah, but, yeah. they, but they will hold it against you and, and not let not release you if they ever do arrest you for anything, though. So, final yeah, thoughts? Yeah. Nope. All right, that'll do it for us then. You guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com. On Telegram again, t.me slash anarchistexperience or t.me slash theanarchistexperience. Check those sites for the links to the Clubhouse uh, Club. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, we do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash theanarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening. We'll talk to you all next week. Peace. Aloha.